All right. You guys ready to jump in the word this morning? I'm stoked. Really believe God's got a word for this house. But last week, I, I want to just say real quickly <clears throat> that I sense that God is doing something very deep in the hearts and the lives of this church family. I've been around long enough to have seen many things. I've seen some good. I've seen some bad. But one thing I've sensed in the hearts of many of the people that we have associated with over the years is that there is a new level of hunger that seems to be on display in our churches across America. We, we sometimes get reports of congregations that aren't doing so well. We get reports of churches that don't seem to be thriving. But listen to me, it's not simply about a church building where we can define or um, explain God's movement, God's activity. It's not a bad place, but it's not the only place. You know where the best place is? Is in your life to be on display outside the walls of a building. The Bible says you are the ecclesia, you're the church. So whatever happens inside the walls, you want to leave this building and be Jesus to a generation, to be Jesus to your neighbor, to be Jesus to your family that doesn't know God. How many agree with this? So it cannot be just simply a display inside the walls of a building. It must be something that we carry beyond this place and into the world in which we live. How else will the world know unless they hear from a preacher? And that word preacher is not referencing necessarily this space right here. It's referencing you. How will the world know without your voice telling people about the love of God? Amen? All right, don't be too quiet on me this morning. I can't handle that. It's morning. I got to have you at least responding once in a while. Turn your Bibles, if you have one this morning, the physical Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you have your iPad, your whatever it is you have, pull that out as well. Find your place, Samuel chapter 6, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1. Actually, we'll be spending time in verses 1 through 23, but more specific, verses 14 through 23. Let me just set this up if we could. Second Samuel, here we go. Man, worship was good this morning. Thanks, Pastor Josh. Wow. I could just keep going in that. I just love, love to worship. But you're going to find out here this morning. I, uh, I became increasingly interested, intrigued by the Sappington name. It's not a common name, but it's a name that I've had for 61 years of my life. And it's a name I've begun to be curious about as it relates to American history. I mean, is there anything in American history related to the Sappingtons? I knew there was a city in Missouri named Sappington. I looked it up one time, and it said it was known for its crack cocaine. I thought, that is, that is not what I wanted to read. I was hoping for something like a coat of arms, you know, known for its lions, you know, they were just like these people that were, no, known for crack cocaine. Thank you very much. I did a little more research recently, and I'm not really sure how I got to this place, but I stumbled upon a house called the Sappington House in Crestwood, Missouri. It was built in 1808 by Thomas Sappington. And so I saw some of the pictures. They had restored this old house. It was beautiful. I was so proud to know that the city of Sappington wasn't so famous, 
But there was a house in Missouri called the Sappington House. Kind of cool. With a little more research, it looks as though, I think it's true, that it's my great-great-grandfather who built this house in 1808. Now, there's other, some other fun stuff that I found out that we were connected to in that period of time that we don't have time to go into. But it was very cool. This old house had been restored on Sappington Road. Is anybody watered? Can somebody give me some water? For whatever reason, I'm really thirsty. Yeah, look at that. some serious water, babe. <laughs> give me five minutes. I'll be right back. <sighs> Yo, it's got to wait for the last part. Our little boy, Blake, when he was small, remember he was drinking, he'd go. <sighs> <sighs> so good. <laughs> I hope someday that Candy and I can travel back to Missouri and, and see a little bit of my, my heritage there. Excuse me, there in, in Missouri. They almost lost me. Sorry. That water was strong. <laughs> but that sapping new story is a little bit of free information. What really got me curious was that in my, my heritage, in my lineage, my line, um, there are some things I want to relate to you as, a, as, as, as I want to share with you this morning how important our worship truly is and what it leaves for the next generation, two or three. We belong, this church, if you didn't know this, you probably don't hear this very often, but I'm just going to let you know, we belong to a denomination called the Assemblies of God. It's our covering, if you will. It's where many of us are credentialed and, and, um, and have, yeah, we're credentialed. And uh, in 1914, you're, saying, you're probably thinking, I don't care, but that's okay. Just track with me for a moment. 1914, say 1914. 1914. Thank you very much. The Assemblies of God, the AOG, was formally organized in a place called Hot Springs, Arkansas. And what I want you to hear is my grandfather, L.A. Sappington, was in attendance at the very first, what we call General Council of the Assemblies of God. What I didn't know was, I found this out too, not too long ago, not only was my grandfather, L.A. Sappington, Lloyd Adam Sappington there, but his brother, John Sappington, was there. So this very small gathering in Arkansas, two of my, of my family members, my grandfather and his brother, were at the beginning of what now has become a movement across the globe called the Assemblies of God. I think one of the greatest missionary agencies that's ever, ever been raised up. We have our issues, we have our flaws, like every organization. But I want to tell you this morning, I'm grateful, and hear me, this is what I'm telling you. I'm grateful for a family, my dad, my mom, raised me under this umbrella of a Pentecostal church. I'm grateful that my grandfather was there at that first general council. I don't know, we don't know really what happened. I guess we found out about his brother because no, there's no information on John, but it found out that he was, he was shot and killed. He was murdered. How about that? And part of, the re, part of it was he was spreading the gospel. He was preaching. My grandfather told stories about selling fuller brushes. You, many won't even know what that is. He'd go to door, door to door selling these, these brushes to make a living. And while out selling brushes, he would talk about Jesus and how many times he got beat up for the cause of Christ. So 
again, here's, here's my point. I'm sharing this bit of trivia with you in the history that of my Pentecostal heritage for a reason. I was destined, here it is, I was destined because of what my grandfather pursued and experienced to be a radical worshiper of God. I will never apologize for my worship. I will never apologize for my passion in worship. You say, here's a type A. It has nothing, well, maybe a little bit to do. But for, the, <laughs> but for the most part, it's not about my type A personality. It's really, my type A personality is nowhere close to what it was many years ago. Amen, Candy? She giggles, yeah. It's not. I'm, I've mellowed way out, believe it or not. But it, it, it has to do with my understanding of my right relationship with God. It has everything to do with I want to honor him. I, I'm a crier in worship this morning. I'm weeping because I saw what God wants to do in and through your lives. I saw a picture and I saw just this, this, this glorious band of people with their hands raised in this group setting. And I saw the, the rays like this, these light rays of heaven shining down on these people and their arms are extended forward towards, towards the, the light. And I know what it was. It was Jesus. We're worshiping Jesus and no one cared. No one was like, that's offensive. I say, be offended if you have to be. But if for me and my house, we will Worship the King, Jesus. Amen? Amen? I'm grateful for my Pentecostal heritage. Now, like, um, I'll say this. We did not grow up, I did not grow up, and I think Candy might agree with this, in a stereotypical Pentecostal church. In other words, we didn't swing from the rafters, although I think that might have been fun. <laughs> there, was, there, there was never... And some of you be like, hey, man, praise God. An hour of worship. I'm like, I dig worship, and I could do it now for an hour easily. I love it. Many adopters of the Pentecostal way were thought to be people that lived on the other side of the tracks. The lower class people, the uneducated, those that did not fit in with the, the contemporary religious church, if you will. But what we did experience in my church growing up, we did experience powerful altar calls. Maybe that's where I fell in love with the altar. We had experiences at the altars. We saw signs and wonders. Even as a boy, I can remember stories of people being healed, of deafness. Jesus touched my body. I, I will receive that one. Blind eyes, I don't remember blind eyes being opened, but I'm, I want to believe they were. Powerful missionary stories, people coming through from across the, across the globe telling stories of salvation, of, of tribal African leaders. Families, entire families, three, four, five, six people, all at the same time, hand in hand, coming to the altar to accept Jesus. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't you love to see that at Banner Church? To see entire families, dad looks at his wife, wife looks at the kids, say, come on. We're going down there and we're going to accept Jesus. Our family is going to be a, a place where Jesus is the center of what we do and how we live. Can you dream for that? We saw, we saw hippies with long hair. I wish I had it still. <laughs> Barefoot and arriving fresh from the sandy shores of Huntington Beach, California. That was my upbringing. And I'm grateful to mom and dad who raised me in the Pentecostal heritage. 
who wasn't afraid to be called a Pentecostal, who was not afraid to be called a charismatic, who was not afraid to look a little different than other believers or even churches because they knew where they had come from. My dad knew his heritage. It was not an easy life. My dad was born in 1924. I know these stats because I've been looking at my, my, what do you call it, my heritage. And my dad, my dad did not grow up in the best of circumstances. My, my grandfather was a pioneer. He would go places, plant a church, and then leave. Not much of a life for the kids. But I'm telling you, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for my heritage. Unfortunately, it feels like to me, over the decades, as it, what I experienced as a young boy, maybe even as a teenager, it lost some of its steam through the decades. Not so much just inside of me, but I think the church, the Pentecostal church, had to figure out who they were. And I began to see, as I got older, recognizing that pastors, to grow their churches, begin to change the format of their gatherings. Worship was a little less loud and long, less lengthy, as I mentioned, and maybe at times a little more liturgical or a little bit more focused on some of the things they felt like mattered. And instead of teaching in a, or a practice of Pentecostalism, there was more of a focus on time, looks, and a type of sophistication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't remember a ton from my, my um, young boy days to my teenage years, I don't remember a lot of the activity of the church. I liken that to probably there wasn't a lot going on. But that was not mine, nor I'm going to say Candy's narrative as we grew older. And we pursued ministry together. We got married and determined her, I could tell you something about Candy's lineage, very, very similar to mine. Her great-great-grandmother was at the first general council where my grandfather was. That's nuts. And if we found out they had a relationship, I'd be freaked out right now. I'd be like, that just doesn't, yeah, it's just wrong. But that's our heritage. You wonder why we're not afraid to be people that contend for his presence? It's in our heritage, it's in our DNA. So as we look this morning at this iconic figure called David, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that we need to become a little bit more like King David. And I'm going to explain that in just a moment. Let's turn in second, to 2 second Samuel chapter 6. Verse, uh, let's just start with verse 1. I'm going to read some verses to you this morning and um, see if we can glean a few things from this. So let me just back up and say, chapter 5, King David, in verse 1, verse 2, it's, it basically states and shows us and tells us that David is now the king over all the tribes of Israel. He'd already become the king over the, the, of Judah and the tribes that represented Judah, but now he's the king of all the tribes, and they've anointed him as king. So we find chapter 5, David's king of all of Israel. We have a war with the Philistines, and now in chapter 6, we pick up 
this important thing that he's been tasked to do. Verse one, again, David gathered together. Now listen, the scriptures, I messed up as always I do. I, I tend to study and read out of what we call the Amplified Bible. We're big ESV people, which is my second favorite. We don't have the Amplified over here, so you're gonna see ESV up here. There'll be a little difference in wording. Are you guys okay? Thank you very much. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. That just blows my mind. Hey, 30,000, come over here. 30,000 people, right? The church can't get 200 people to show up. Yet David's 30,000. David rose and went with all those who were with him to Baal Judah, or Baal, I don't know how to say that, to bring up from there to Jerusalem the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who dwells enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart, say new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah, I love the name, Uzzah. I don't know how you really say it, but that's how I'm gonna say it. Uzzah in Ohio, 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 Ohio. <laughs> Sons, some city, uh, no, it wasn't a city, but a person. Sons of Abinadab are leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking in front of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating and dancing before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir, cypress wood, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. Now, verse six, when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out with his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen stumbled and nearly overturned. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. I, what, a, what a crazy story. David just become the king of all of Israel, and one of his first things that happens is some dude's walking with the ark of the covenant, which he's been tasked to bring back to Jerusalem, and it, and it starts to stumble, and he reaches out and touches it, and because of touching the ark of the covenant, he dies. Does that seem crazy to you? Listen, this is what, I want to make some observations this morning of King David's leadership and, and worship of Jehovah God. In verses 6 through 8, the first observation I want to make is there are times when the presence of God presents us with a problem. It presents us with a problem. There's a big problem here. For many of us, we might say this, no big deal. He touched, the, he touched this wooden box, big stinking deal. He touched the cart to steady it so it wasn't going to crash to the ground. And I think a lot of us would probably have done the same thing out of reaction. Like, ah, whoa. We're doing our part. We're going to keep this thing on the cart and keep it from hitting the dirt, hitting the ground. It seems the punishment is way more severe than the actual crime, doesn't it? Yeah. But was it? Was it truly? Exodus 25 tells us specifically how the ark was to be carried. That box that was the, the, the ark of the covenant had loops on the side with a pole that was poked through the hole so it could be carried without being touched. So these, these, these rods went through these little eyelets and they would put it over their shoulder and would carry it over their shoulders so no one was actually physically touching the ark. It was a type of covering was also placed over it so no one could accidentally touch it. 
But we see these instructions here in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel were completely ignored, blown off. And they carried it the way that they felt like they were supposed to carry it. Matter of fact, I think it was the Philistines who taught them how to carry the ark. The Philistines should never have been telling the people of God how to carry the presence of God. Verse 3 says they got a new cart to carry it on. Not only, not only were they going to carry it differently, they were instructed in Exodus chapter 25, but now they're saying, hey, let's get a new cart. Let's do the new thing. We're going we're gonna to get a shiny, beautiful new cart, and we're going to put the Ark of the Covenant on it, and we're going to watch these bulls, these animals, pull it. Now, check this out. You guys okay? You see, new, new does not always equate to better. In fact, in fact, it can actually be a problem when the presence of God shows up. Because sometimes we want to do the new thing when God hasn't finished the old thing yet. We're like, God, I want the new. And he's like, no, no, slow down. I have completely fulfilled the work I started in you a while back. Chill out. Relax. Relax. See, following God's instructions in worship, I think, are more important than our ways. And it feels as though we've lost sight of this somehow in the Western church. We've become more about, about form than about formation. We've become more about being performance-driven rather than presence-driven. So let's look. The next thing we can see here is that Uzzah had no clue, no clue of his own sinfulness. He had no idea what he was doing. His reasoning for reaching out and touching the ark was so that it would not fall and hit the dirt. Right? How many know that we live in a desert? We understand it's dirty. It's dusty, right? I found this quote. A theologian says it this way. The dirt has never rebelled against the authority of God. Only sinful man has done that. It was not the dirt on the ground that would defile the ark. It was the touch of man that would. That's wild. Again, the Father wants to teach us as being apprentices of his how we can learn to follow his voice, to learn how to hear him and to follow him because sometimes what we think is right is not right. In our mind, the touching the dirt is the violation rather than me, a person who is unclean and only clean because of the grace and goodness of God. I sometimes wonder how much we're like Uzzah, unaware of our sinfulness or just how far we faded from our place of origin with God. Are you, are you more in love with Jesus today than you were the day you met him? Seriously. I want you to ponder that just a little bit this morning. 
I'm going to add this, not my notes, this is free, but I, I feel like I need to say it. I remember growing up in church, and someone would, someone would get saved, and I think every salvation is radical, but they say, got radically saved. How I many you know that going from death to life is radical, no matter how you... But this is what we would say in church life. Some of you have been around long enough, you might remember this, Carolyn, you might remember this, where they'd say this, like, oh, bless their heart. When they get a little more mature in Christ, they'll mellow out. Right, okay, so here's the thing. We do need to mature. We do need to chill out a little bit in terms of how we, we follow God. But really, it has nothing necessarily to do with our, our physical expression or how emotional we get. I think, apart from age, age does have a tendency to kind of mellow you out because you don't have the same energy I had when I was 20. I hate that. I do. But the reality is this, is that with every bit of energy I have, I'm probably every bit as, as, as much a worshiper I am today as I was in my 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. My wife would be able to tell you if that's true or not true. Am I right? I would say it's true. Even if she says it's not. <laughs> Our passion for purity for holiness, for righteousness, for worshiping with abandonment should be a part of our journey. Second observation. What was the answer to the problem in those first few verses in chapter six? You ready for this? The answer was and always will be found in his presence. It's in the presence of almighty God. That's why we come together and we don't just sing songs. I grew up hearing these words. We have a song service. No, it's not just a song service. We praise, we worship, we adore, we, we acknowledge, we shout, we, we glory in God, and we welcome him into our presence. Why? So when he shows up, he walks in the midst of our, our, our aisles. He begins to tap you on the shoulder and say, tap, you're it, tap, you're it, tap, you're it, and we get to chase him. It's like, I love that old game, right? What was it called? Tap, tap, goose? Tap, tap, huh? Whatever. Huh? Tap, tap, goose is better. Tap, tap, what is it? Tap, tap, duck? Duck, duck. Goose. Goose. All right. You got it. Moving along. How many know that God's problem to the answer, or his answer to the problem was found in his? So verse 11, let's jump into verse 11. Verse 11 says, So the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. Say three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. So the ark of the Lord remained in that house for three months. Why? Simply put, they were freaked out. They were afraid. They were afraid of the present. They saw what happened when Uzzah reached out and touched the ark with his hand. That dude died on the spot. So David puts it in his house, and check this out. He puts it in a house, by our terms today, it would have been a house where they didn't even believe that Jesus was the Messiah. 
It'd be like taking a forgiveness analogy, but it's a, it, you, take, you take the glory of God and you put it somewhere like a home like that doesn't even believe that Jesus is, is the Messiah. Jesus is not our salvation. Maybe in a religion, we can name some different religious groups. I won't do it. You put it in their house and you leave it there for three months. And while it's there for three months, guess what happens? It gets blessed. They know we believe the same thing we believe and yet God blessed their house. That's so cool. And the Lord is continuing, the Lord blessed that home and the Lord blessed the house. And let's go to verse 12. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed, Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went down, brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed, Edom into the city of David with rejoicing and gladness while things have turned just in this Short, short chapter, things turn quite quickly. I think at this point, David, David's faith in Jehovah God is rekindled as he sees that Obed-Edom has been blessed by hosting the Ark of the Covenant, by hosting the presence of God. Let me just say this. How many understand that you host the very presence of God right inside of you right now. When you invite Jesus into your heart, when you make him the Lord of your life, and you're not going through the religious duty, but you want him in your life, I promise you something. You are the carrier of the glory of God. And there's more inside of you than you even know. God wants to use you like you don't even understand. You say, little old me, O-L-E, ole, little ole me. Yes, you. God wants to use every one of us. It's not about, it's not about position. It's not about title. It's not about how long you've been serving God. God says, will you host me? And if you will host my presence, I will use you. I will use you. Verse 13, and when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord by its poles had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. That's a great word. Notice it was those who bore it. It's now being carried out the correct way by the people. We are to be the carriers of God's presence, as I mentioned. It was never the intent of God that we be led by our flesh, by religion, or someone else's form of worship. Verse 13, it says a sacrifice was made. Why did they sacrifice that animal at that time? I'll tell you why. A lamb in the place of Uzzah. God provided a safe way for them to carry the presence and return it to Israel. In other words, this is the proper way. We are moving towards its home. We're carrying it the proper way, the glory of God. We're carrying the presence of God the proper way. And we're not going to get in the way of it. We're not going to get ahead of it. We're not going to bring, have animals leading. We're going to be the carriers of the glory. And when we get to a certain place, we're going to sacrifice to God. We're going to sacrifice as an offering unto God. That was safe passage for them. They kept their hearts in the right place. They didn't try to move in such a way that God would not honor that. The third observation I want you to hear, and this is where we're gonna, this is where we're gonna go, the rest of the message. Number three, observation. Undignified worship is not the worst thing. I don't know, this, this could mess some of you up. 
as David, 2 Samuel 6, 14, it says, and David was dancing before the Lord with great enthusiasm. That's what my Amplified says. If we have that up here. David, whatever, what other words do you have there? With all his might, what? With all his might. How I many you know that's with everything? With everything within him, David was dancing with great enthusiasm. And David was wearing a linen ephod. In other words, a priest's upper garment. There were some translations here that um, would suggest that, and I've heard it, I probably have preached it. Sounds more demonstrative maybe than it should be. But it says that David was naked. That's not true. Scholars have indicated that what he did was strip down to his underwear. I just got to tell you, that's almost as bad as being naked. You know what I'm saying? Like, like in our culture today, I am not going to get up here in my underoos or whatever it is. I, and I, maybe I will wear, you know, one of these linen, maybe it might be fun. I don't know. But, here, but here's, here's the reality. This is what a Jewish man consisted of, a linen ephod that they wore under their robes. They were kind of an adult, you know, Marvel DC Comics underwear, right? It's just this thing that they wore. And what happens in verse 15, it says this. It said that, so David and all the house of Israel were bringing the ark of the Lord up to the city with shouts of joy and with the sound of a trumpet. Here's what I want you to catch. David stripped himself of his royal garments, if you will, and he became like one of everyone. He became like everyone else. And he said, I, I'm going to be like the commoner. I'm going to be like everyone else. And I'm going to be that person with everything I have within me. I'm going to worship God as we bring the holy of holies back to its rightful place. Hang in there. Track with me for a couple more minutes here. Verse 16, the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michal, Saul's daughter, parentheses, David's wife, Interesting, it says Saul's daughter first, not David's wife first. Looked down from the window above and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she felt contempt for him in her heart. And my Amplified says, because she thought him undignified. This might be the first recorded Meryl spat in the Old Testament between David and McCall. This is the first domestic argument you're going to find. When David finished offering the burnt offerings, verse 18, and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed to all the people, excuse me, the entire multitude of Israel, both to men and women, to each a ring-shaped loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people departed, each to his house. We're going to come back to that at the end of the message. Verse 20, then David returned to bless his household, but his wife, Michal, <clears throat> excuse me, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him, meet David, and said, how glorious and distinguished was the king of Israel today, uh, 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 who covered himself and stripped off his robes in the eyes of the servants' maids, like one of the riffraff who shamelessly uncovers himself. She slammed him hard. I mean, she really did. She slammed him hard. And I don't know about you, man. 
that wouldn't have sat real well with me. I want to believe I'd have said, oh, babe, I'm so sorry you felt that way. I probably would have said, are you kidding me right now? It wouldn't have been pretty. <laughs> what she was saying was this. You look so stupid what you did. You act, you're acting like those early Pentecostals who are like swinging from the rafters, making lots of noise. You're acting like a commoner or a peasant. You're acting like one of those other people. You're the, you're the king. And she was offended because her kingly husband wasn't acting like a kingly husband because she had in her mind the way the king should be acting. How many times do we go to church and we're concerned about what other people think about our worship and we become offended like McCall because we're worshiping the way that's uncomfortable to her or uncomfortable to you? Verse 21, so David said to McCall, it was before the Lord that I did this who chose me above your father in all of his house. Bam! Take that, McCall. He appointed me as ruler over Israel, the people of the Lord. Therefore, I will celebrate in pure enjoyment before the Lord. Here you'll find one of the most famous of all domestic conflicts in the Bible and how it kind of was, was, was wrapped up there. Translated, hey, zip it, McCall. I want to hear any more from you. I was chosen by God when I was just a shepherd boy, learning how to kill a lion and a bear to protect the flock. There's nothing special about me but because of what God has done for me. Remember how Saul was always concerned about what everyone else thought of him. Saul was a people's king and David was a God king. Many people in the church are church people, not Jesus people. We're too concerned about what people think of us. I don't care what anyone thinks of me. I want them to know how great my God is and what he has done. He is my everything, David proclaims. For us, we proclaim the same thing. He brought me to this position as king, and I want the kingdom to know how much I love my God. And as for those women you were so concerned about that you thought were going to lust after me and faint over me and want to have sex with me, he says these words, he basically says, when they see how truly undignified I can be in my service and worship a Yahweh, they will see that there's really no difference in them and me and they will learn to trust in the God that I've committed my life to. I say to you this morning that when you're concerned about what people think of your worship, that you're concerned about how you, you demonstrate your love for God, you're concerned about lost humanity, who's not in the building, by the way, you're concerned about what lost humanity, or maybe, maybe there's times when you walked in the building and, and maybe you've had family members come with you that don't know uh, or, or agree necessarily with your faith, or, and you, you're, you change your worship because you're concerned about what mom or dad or about someone else in the house thinks of you and I say you are being a hypocrite and we've all been there if I'm going to confess this morning I confess to you I'm a lot like more like Saul at times I am like David I've been way more concerned at times about my worship before man than I have before God and I'm hoping that the older I've gotten and getting the less I care about what you think of me and how I worship.
I've heard it said that the essence of worship is putting the worthiness of God on display. Worship means worthship. When we worship God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we're declaring how valuable and important he is to us. That's a good, that's a good place to just ponder for a moment. Like, just chew on that. Like, how worthy is he to me in my life? Where do I place him? I say he's number one in my life, but really where is he on the top 10 of my life? Is he nestled in between Netflix and Amazon? No, Amazon probably over Google, over Netflix. But, oh, he might be number two and a half, somewhere in there. But we don't want to be that honest, right? I'm asking you this morning to be honest because I'm just going to tell you straight out, I'm calling us to a higher place. I'm calling us to be like a King David and start ripping off the clothing and stand, forget the way I'm gonna say this is not the cleanest, but stand naked, if you will, in your underwear before God and say, I don't care who sees me. I don't care. There's a few more things I'd like to just leave us with, if that's okay. What does our worship tell us or tell others about the value we have of God? I do understand our traditions, our backgrounds, our religious experiences, or lack of, affect how we worship God. I get this. And no way am I suggesting that because um, you don't worship like me, you're in the wrong. That's not what I'm communicating. What I am communicating is this there's a whole other place that God wants to take you in your worship. Whether you're type A, B, C, D, or Z, I don't care. It's not about your personality or your temperament. It's about your response to the heart of God. If he said to you today in worship, I need you to get out of your seat and walk that long aisle that we have in this building and come stand in the front and become undignified, would you do it? And I know some of you can be undignified because if, if, I were, if, I were to, if I were to say to you these, this thought, like, okay, we've got a relationship, we're, we're good friends, and um, your demonstration of God's different than mine. I'm a little bit more exuberant. You're very mellow and passive in your worship. But then I say, would you go home and would you ask, actually ask God to show you whether or not you're as, as excited about when your kid scores a touchdown as you are when you come to church? Or if I were to throw a million dollars in your lap, would that usher a undignified response? Answer is probably. I'm just, I'm just asking, is there, is there more inside of us than we've given to the Father? I don't read anywhere else, Pastor Josh, where David danced like that. Do you? I don't see it. So there was something more in David. We know that David was a man after God's own hearts.
We know that David was not a perfect leader. Chapter 6, the first part of it, we read that he, he didn't lead the procession well, taking the Ark of the Covenant back to its rightful place. It didn't go well. We know he made bad choices, but he was still the king that God chose to lead the kingdom. He's chosen you. He's chosen me. He's chosen us to be a part of his kingdom. And he's asking us in our worship, are we willing to posture ourselves in such a way that he can pour out his glory and as he pours his glory out, we're like, God, oh, I don't know if I can contain it anymore. Guys, I've seen it. We've seen it all in this sense up to this point of how and what happens when the glory of God is poured out. Like that. <laughs> just like that. It's messy. It's ugly. It's just water. But when it's messy and it's ugly and it's God, it's beautiful. Thank you, Lord, for the illustration. I want more of this for you because it's uncomfortable. It's not pretty. It's not necessarily always fun. But when you get to the other side, you look back and go, oh God, I thank you for that moment, that encounter, that place that was messy, that place that was just not the easiest, but I got... Thank you, Father. So here's how we, we wrap this up this morning. So in verse 19, we find this very weird thing that happens. David, it says, he distributed to all the people, everyone that was there, both the men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. They all left and went to their houses. What, is, what does that possibly mean? It's one of the weirdest verses that is here listed. And I believe it means this for us this morning. Why did you send everyone home with a raisin cake? I hate raisin cake. In ancient Israel, it was believed that the raisin cake actually, shall we say, had ingredients that caused fruit bearing between a man and a woman. How true, untrue this may be, I'm not sure, but would you find in scripture in Song of Solomon, like an apple tree, and read out the Amplified again, like an apple tree, rare and welcome. And this is a little bit graphic, but you guys are big boys and girls. Among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade, I looked great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet and delicious to my palate. He has brought me to his banqueting table or place, and his banner over me is love, waving. Sustain me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples because I'm sick with love. I think our wives men would love to hear that from us. What we have here is a picture of a lovesick bride longing to be in the arms of her bridegroom again. What does she ask for? She asks refreshment from raisin cakes. In a sense, David was saying to go now, worship God in an undignified way. Be fruitful in your pursuit of me. In my presence, you will find my glory. And when you are passionate for me and possess self-forgetfulness, like it's not about you, I will respond to you and abundant fruit will follow. Sustain me with a raisin cake heavenly food that will give me the strength and fortitude to worship the bridegroom until he comes back. He will come back someday. Listen to me. Jesus is coming back someday. Do not get lazy in thinking, well, he hasn't come yet. 
No, he hasn't. But until that day, we have an assignment to be fruitful, to be undignified in our worship, to be people of the kingdom, to be Christ followers, and let our yes be yes and our no, no, and to let Jesus be seen in our lives. How you say, how's this sound to you this morning? Now, I'm not going to ask you to get up here on the platform with me and dance. But I am asking for something this morning. I'm asking you to go to God. I'm asking you to ask Holy Spirit where you are in your expression of worship. I've seen people walk in a building like this, Pastor Josh, and they come in late. And they're like, oh, it's just going to be worship. They grab their coffee. They sit down. They look at their watch. Their hands are folded. And drink their coffee. And they're no more in love with Jesus than... How do you know that? Because you can tell in their posture. Your posture is everything when it comes to position yourself to receive the glory of God's promises. If you're like this, yeah, it's just a statement of I'm not interested. You're like this, oh God, everything you have, I want, I want it. That's why we lift our hands. There's all kinds of like there's just tons of scripture to talk about lifting up your hands. So would you stand with me for this morning? Pastor Josh is going to lead us. Here's what I want you to do. Just consider this. I want you in your worship this morning, right now in this moment, I want you to drown out everyone around you. Don't worry about anyone else. Don't be a Saul, be a David right now in this moment. And I want you to ask the Father this question. Lord, how can I become more undignified than this? Maybe for you, it's, and I know physically sometimes we can't get out. We got body parts that don't work like they used to. I get all of that. In no way is this an indictment on anyone. It's simply, there's more. There's more. There's more for you in your worship. God is calling a generation, not one, the generations to come together and worship Him in spirit and in truth, in spirit and integrity, and hunger and thirst for more of God. Banner Church is going to lead in Mesa, in the things of the kingdom, in revival. I believe this with all of my heart, and He's asking you and me to sacrifice and to be an example in worship, to be undignified, to be a people that says, God, I want everything you've got for my life, nothing less. So as you worship, ask the Father, and then we'll see if we can respond accordingly. Thank you for listening to the Banner Church Podcast. We hope this message was impactful for you. Check the episode notes to visit our website, follow us on social media, and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you again next week.